0: Crossway Church, Sermon Audio. Lord, we need you to speak to us. We all need your hope. We need your word to guide us into truth. We need your spirit to work in our hearts. We are easily confused and discouraged, but you are truth. You are love, you are a refuge for your people. And so as we come to your word, Father, help us to humble our hearts, help us to sit under your word, looking for you, longing for you, that you might accomplish all your purposes in us, in this church, and that you might be rightly glorified. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Please be seated. Hope is powerful. It can make the difference between life and death. It can motivate to heroic feats and provide endurance in the face of soul-crushing trials. But on the other hand, the absence of hope is draining. Hopelessness tells tells us that nothing is worth it, and it feeds our self-pity. We all need hope But not all hope is real. Not all hope is grounded in reality or consistent with the truth. We're all familiar with hope, but we're also familiar with false hopes, with those promises that just don't quite pan out in the end. On September 30th, 1938, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain landed outside of London, and he spoke to the crowds there. He told them, The settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem which has been achieved is, in my view, only the prelude to a larger settlement in which all Europe may find peace. This morning I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler, and here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. Some of you perhaps have already heard what it contains, but I would just like to read it to you. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. Later that day, Chamberlain stood outside of 10 Downing Street and concluded, My good friends, for the second time in our history, a British prime minister has returned from Germany bringing peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts go home and get a nice, quiet sleep. Well, the next day, Germany invaded the Sudetenland, and less than a month later, they invaded the rest of Czechoslovakia, and less than a year later, on September 1st, uh, World War II had officially begun. Chamberlain's intentions, no doubt, were honorable, but he was unable to deliver what he had promised, peace for our time, four words that he might desperately wish to take back. But which history has shown to be nothing more than false hope based on empty promises. Christians are often accused of offering false hopes. We worship a God whom we cannot see. We look to an ancient book for guidance and direction in this life. Many of the values that we hold dearest are terribly inconsistent with what our culture tells us is progress and virtue and equality. We invest our time and our monies, our energies and our affections in the church. And we seek to live as though this world is not our final home. Because it isn't. Why? Why are we willing, eager even, to live so differently? Because we have met the risen Christ. And our hope is grounded firmly in Him. So when it comes to the big questions of life... Our hope is fairly clear. We hope in God. More specifically, we hope in the grace and mercy of God as offered to us in Jesus Christ. That is our hope. But life seeks to rob our hope. And we have an enemy. And the devil always aims to convince us that God is not good and he's not to be trusted, that he's unreliable at best. And so even though we know where our hope should lie, we face a battle every day Every moment, really, to actually hope in God. In the trials and conflicts of life, our hope is revealed. When things aren't going as we planned, our affections and our choices make it plain. Are we hoping in God, or in money, or in relationships, or in progress, or the list could multiply endlessly? Well, thankfully, we're not the first ones to look for hope in this life. King David was a man very familiar with trials and sufferings. He experienced glorious highs. So you think about him conquering Goliath or becoming king and uniting the whole kingdom of Israel. And he experienced crushing lows, right, being hunted by his father-in-law, losing a son in childbirth, having his wife oppose him, having a son usurp his throne. And because of David's role in salvation history, because he's so large in the Bible, we know quite a lot about his trials. Many of his trials inspired these very psalms that we've been studying. In today's psalm, he has a very simple message for us, I think will help us in our own trials and sufferings. David's going to say to us, hope in God alone. Those are four simple words, and they they may seem too simple. They may seem simplistic. They, They kind of sound like bumper sticker theology. But hope is only as good as its object. And in those four words are exactly what we need to live life fully and faithfully in this age. Hope in God alone. So we're going to unpack how and why to hope in God alone in the midst of life here, in the midst of suffering and challenge, under the two categories that David gives us. The first is hope in the face of opposition. And the second is hope without regard to circumstances. And as we turn to read David's inspired instructions... Let's look to quiet our hearts, because hope in God is rarely loud and flashy. It's it's more substantial than that. It's like a strong keel on a ship that provides the foundation that keeps us steadfast in the midst of life's trials. You know what a keel is, right? It's the, the backbone of the ship. It's the very first component in construction, and everything ties into it. And a keel has a very important function for a ship. It takes sideways energy and converts it into forward motion. That's what hope does for us. It takes the sideways currents of of trial and suffering and converts them into the forward motion of faith in God. But it requires some thoughtfulness. It requires some consideration and some engagement with God to know that kind of deep and foundational hope, that kind of soul-quieting peace and rest. It doesn't come cheap and easy. David's words are just going to sound like slogans if we're looking for bullet points or some sort of ready action plan. You know, just tell me what to do here. It's not the way hope is. Hope is much deeper than that. It actually, we're going to see, hope requires silence. So let's read Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. Wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken. Twice have I heard this. That power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love you will render to a man according to his work. Hope in God alone. So let's look at hope in the face of opposition. The first two verses here serve as a header for the psalm. They, They tell us what David's aims are for us as we're brought immediately into David's distress. He's clearly been unsettled by something, some circumstances troubling him. And so he begins by professing faith In God, And because the words are simple, they're familiar Bible terms, it's the kind of thing that we can read quickly past and not let the import, not let the the full claims that David is making impact and have the right effect on our hearts and minds. So we're going to look at these two verses, these 29 words, and try and see what is David saying to us? What's the meaning here? So let's slow down and and get into these verses. Verse 1, "'For God alone my soul waits in silence.'" Well, we noted before that hope is only as good as its object. And here David is hoping in God, who's the best object, and God alone. That's a very important word, isn't it? An important modifier, alone. David is fixing his eyes exclusively and determinedly on Jesus. He's not looking to anyone else. He's looking to God alone. And he waits in silence. No complaining, no demanding. His waiting is faith-filled. He's waiting for God alone in silence because he has a rightly grounded conviction that from him comes my salvation. The challenge here when we're facing trial is to silence our hearts both from our own thoughts and from the accusations of the devils. When we face suffering or injustice, everything within us wants to cry out, this is wrong, this shouldn't be, something needs to change, this can't be the way life is supposed to be. And all of that may or may not be true. But in the midst of our response, we're tempted to jettison God and start looking around for anything that will solve our immediate issue. And that's a fatal error. Because it kills our hope. David is patiently building something for us here. He's in distress. He waits for God alone in silence. Now, David isn't a fatalist. He isn't, well, whatever happens. You know, it's God's will. It doesn't matter. He's not lazy. And he's not waiting for God because he doesn't have any other options. There are always other options. The devil will see to that. David is waiting for God Because he's convinced that God is the only good and true option. God is the only one who can actually save David from his distress. And we're going to tease this out in the verses below. But but I want us to note here, what truths is David employing? What is he engaging with as he's facing trial and suffering? Well, he's operating out of the biblical position, which is that this is his father's world. Which means every circumstance that David is facing, every particular person he's interacting with, every challenge and every joy, everything that he's dealing with every day is from his father. It's ordained by his Lord. That's true for us as well. Every circumstance that you're facing, every trial that you're going through comes through the hand of God. God is sovereign over all things. That affects dramatically How we engage with hope in this world. If God isn't sovereign, what's our hope? Who do we look to? We look to the God who reigns over all things. And because David knows this, because he's convinced of this, he's looking to God alone in silence. He's fundamentally oriented to God. He's a man like us, and so he's tempted to look to other sources. But here he's walking in faith. His eyes are fixed toward God for salvation. And then he continues into verse 2. He alone is my rock and my salvation. God alone. Notice as we go through the psalm, how many times alone and only. is commended to us. God alone, God only. There's an exclusivity to hope in God. In fact, the more exclusive our hope in God, the more clearly we magnify Him. Because by hoping in God alone... We we point to him exclusively. We say, I could look elsewhere. I could hope otherwise. But my eyes, my heart is fixed on God. For from him comes my salvation. Not looking anywhere else. So having fixed his hope in God alone, David then calls him his rock and his salvation. He continues, my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. Well, this is David declaring that God has been tested and found true. And more than true, he's been found to be safe and mighty and secure. There's a strength to God that we desperately need. David's soul was under assault, and as he turned to God, he found safe harbor. He found peace and rest. God is a fortress, he's a rock. Just consider that imagery. He's dependable, he's unshakable, he's steadfast. I think we're right to imagine that these are hard-earned truths for David. You don't know God as your fortress if you're not in need of some sort of shelter, if you don't have a sense of danger and assault and turmoil. David certainly had many experiences of that in his life that we're aware of. And this psalm has traditionally been linked to the story of him fleeing Jerusalem as his son Absalom is coming to take the throne from him. You're probably familiar with this story. It's in Second Samuel, beginning in chapter 15. Absalom's David's son, and he's the most handsome man in the kingdom. And he's also very ambitious. And uh, because of the situation with his sister Tamar, he and David have a disagreement. And so Absalom begins to plot to make himself king of Israel. The Bible tells us that he flatters and steals the hearts of the men of Israel. And he succeeds in taking the throne from David. And so that's likely the background to what David is talking about here. Men are conspiring against him, including his own son. And I would commend to you this afternoon, just take and go and read 2 Samuel 15, 16, and see how David engages with God in the midst of that trial. It's remarkable. And uh, the Broncos don't start till 3, so you've got plenty of time to do it. Well, that, that history... Certainly fixed with the next verses, verses 3 and 4. David's expressing his dismay at being under attack. It's apparently been going on for some time because he begins, how long will you attack a man? He's been battered. It's just this relentless. And he, he describes himself as being on the verge of collapse, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. Well, no doubt some of us can relate. Perhaps that's how you're feeling right now, like you've just been battered. And your prayers begin. How long, O oh Lord? How long will I have to suffer like this? When will this end? Is there no relief for me? I think it ought to encourage us that David responds this way. Because his questioning of God comes after his profession of faith. So this is not unbelief. And he's not charging God with wrong. This is a faith filled. Question: It's not Christian to sit impassively in the face of suffering and trial. That's stoicism. Christians aren't stoics. It's Christian to engage with God honestly and humbly. So we note here that David's silence, the silence that he commends to us in verse 1, is not total silence. Just like Jesus' silence on the cross is not total silence. They're both silent toward other hopes, but they're direct and passionate towards God. They're laying it all bare before him. We should be too. We should go to God honestly. God, I know that you're real. I know that you're good. I need you to help me. I need you to save me. I have nowhere else to go. That cry honors God by looking to him, by not looking to other hopes. Well, continuing on, we learn something about David's enemies here. Just as David had a singular aim, he's he's focused on God for his salvation. His enemies have a singular aim, right? They take pleasure... I'm sorry, skipped ahead there. They want to thrust him down from his high position. There's the jealousy and a pettiness to their project. They want to see David torn down and humiliated. They want to throw off his authority and put themselves in his place. And then verse 4 elaborates. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths... But inwardly they curse. They enjoy the lying and the scheming. They, even as they put forward a pleasant front to the world, right? They're kind and deferring to David's face, but then to his back. They backstab him, they, they lie about him, they seek to undermine him. They're the reason why David is waiting for God alone in silence. He's facing serious opposition men who want to tear the throne from his hands. And though we can't relate exactly to having our sons want to take the kingdom from us, we can relate to being betrayed and to being blind. We all have foes. We sometimes face earthly foes, those around us who want to see us suffer and fail, and we certainly have a demonic foe. The devil loves to see God's people stumble. He loves to see us flounder. Most of all, he loves to see us question or forget about God. He wants us to live in this age as though God is not with us. He's not for us. He's not able to save us. He cares less about our profession of faith and more about the actual quality of it. He cares less about us performing religious duties or using spiritual phrases and more about us actually engaging with God. In fact, I, I think the devil's terrified by that thought. That women and men would take God seriously and at his word. And actually put our hope in him every day and every moment. I've always loved how 2 Chronicles 16.9 communicates this truth. There's a prophet and he's come to King Asa who's the king of Judah. And he's telling him, look you shouldn't have hoped in all these other foreign, go- foreign kings to save you from your oppressors. You should have hoped in God alone. And here's why. Second Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. The New American Standard, which is the version I learned it in in my youth, said to strongly support those whose heart is completely his. God's eyes run to and fro throughout the earth to strongly support his people. God looks out for his people. He cares for his own, for those who belong to them, to those who've been named by his name. He shows himself strong for us. And the devil's terrified at that, right? Luther said, one little word shall fell him. We do not fear the prince of darkness grim. I imagine nothing must be more demoralizing to the devil than when men and women who agreed with what he was saying in the Garden of Eden, that God is not good, he's not to be trusted, turn around, repent, and declare, no, God is good, and I'm going to live for him. Standing on that truth shows the devil to be weak and ineffective. And it glorifies God. It shows God to be true to who he really is. So let's apply this a moment. You know, if you can, bring to mind a trial, some circumstance that you're going through right now. Right? Who's involved? What are the circumstances? What are you facing? What are the challenges in your own mind and heart as you engage with this? What are the challenges you're facing in the minds and hearts and actions of others? And then the the question, the bottom line question is, what does faith look like in this moment? What would it look like to say God is here and he's good and I can trust him? You don't want to move quickly past that. You want to consider uh, it, it is no small thing to look to God in the midst of our circumstances. We often, I do this all the time, I think it's my default setting, I look at myself as the primary actor in every circumstance of life. Right? Life is just a play and I'm the main character. (laughs) But God is always the primary actor. It's his glory that's always at stake. He's involved in every life, in every moment, of every person in this age. There's no situation from which God is absent. He's always primary. And if we belong to him, if we're Christians, if we've, been, if we've followed our Lord in baptism, we've taken his name upon us, we know the love of the Father, then there's a special love and a special care for us. The Bible's very clear that God's care for his own even goes beyond his love for the world. If you're a Christian, God's attention in your life is perfect. His love is true and reliable. There's no situation you're facing that he's absent from, that he's disinterested in. His love is comprehensive. It's faithful. And we know from Romans 8 that he's working all of this for our good. He's working to mature us. He's teaching us to love, what it means to love him and to love one another. He means for us to take him At his word and place our hope in him. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ, and the idea of God as your father just seems foreign, it seems strange, then you have something to consider. Because this is who God is. This is who he's revealed himself to be. This isn't something that Christians made up. This is God in his word saying, Here I am. Here's who I am. Here's the kind of God I am. He's opposed to his enemies. And he's merciful. When we humble ourselves and we turn to him and we seek forgiveness, he's faithful. He actually forgives us. So if you're sitting here, you feel conviction for your sins. You don't know what to do with that. If you, if you, you think that, that sounds good, I, I would love to know what forgiveness is. I would love to know what love is. I would love to not feel estranged from God. Jesus is the Savior. He's the one you need. He's the one who came and lived and died and rose again so that forgiveness is actually real. When Jesus rose from the grave after he'd been dead for three days, when he rose from the grave, he demonstrated that everything he did and everything he said is true. He demonstrated that the devil doesn't have the power he brags that he has. That sin and death are powerless before God. And that no sin can finally keep us from him if we turn to him in faith. That's real salvation. That's real power. This isn't just spiritual feel-goodism. This is who God is and what he's done in history to save sinners like you and me. If God were a God who's weak and ineffectual, or if he was a God who was cold and distant, then these verses, verses 1 and 2, make no sense. Why would you look to this God? Why would you trust him? Why would you even bring him into the equation at all? But if he is the God who's come near, if he's the God who condescended to come as a baby and to live life on this earth and to suffer the way we suffer and to identify with us, then our hearts ought to respond appropriately in love. Love is the appropriate response to this kind of action from our God. There should be a mighty affection that propels us to our Savior. God, I'm hoping in you because you've demonstrated conclusively and exhaustively that you're the only place to go. You're the only hope I have. And you're good and you're true. Why would I look for an imitation when the real thing's right here in front of me? This is why David tells us to hope in God alone. Let's look at our second point. Hope without regard to circumstances. I think it's universally acknowledged that the best part of elementary school is the field trips. Now, we had lots of great field trips in Colorado. I always loved our field trips. We'd go out and look at dinosaur bones, or we'd go to Native American cliff dwellings. I think my favorite, and, and generally the favorite, field trip was when we would go into the Rocky Mountains and go panning for gold. And so we'd hop in the bus, and we'd drive up to Cripple Creek, Colorado, and someone would meet us with panning equipment. And so we'd get out and we'd wade into the water and we'd begin. Now, if you've ever panned for gold, you probably know what we found. Is we dipped our pans into the silt of the river bottom and the water washed through and the heavy things, you know, fell to the bottom and the light stuff washed away. Uh, we were all excited by what we found. Because you look in your pan and there's these little shiny gold flakes. We found gold, right? I'm going to have the best baseball card collection in the fifth grade. Um, but, of course, we hadn't found gold. We'd found gold. Pyrite, which is also known as fool's gold. And as our teacher explained, though it shone like gold, it was actually almost worthless. And so our momentary hopes of riches and fame were dashed upon the cold rocks of reality. That's the way false hopes always work. They promise us exactly what we want and more. But they never pay off. They cannot pay off. Sometimes we find that out right away, but sometimes we don't find it out until we've gone through great pain and expense. David wants to spare us that pain, and so he rehearses the truths from the beginning of the psalm again in verses 5 and 6. The best truths always bear repeating, and these are certainly some of the best. Verse 5, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. Well, since we already spent some time unpacking most of this under uh, the first point, I'm not going to elaborate again, but the parallelism, the, the repetition reminds us that David's hope is fixed. It hasn't changed. It hasn't moved. Even in the face of the opposition in verses 3 and 4, he continues to hope in God. Now, if you look carefully, you can see there are a few minor changes. He goes from declaring that his soul waits in silence to actually commanding his soul, O my soul, wait in silence. He's commanding himself to hope in God. And he changes his conclusion from, I will not be greatly shaken, to I will not be shaken, period. Now, we don't want to read too much into these changes, because they could just be, you know, little stylistic things to keep things interesting. But, given the truths he's going to unfold in verses 9 to 10, I think it's safe to say that David's trying to strengthen his resolve. Right? His hope in God... Did not immediately remove his trial. And it rarely does that. And he needs to continue to hope. He needs to persevere in hope. And so he speaks to his soul and he studies himself in the Lord. And he also elaborates a little bit. So, verse 7 On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. It's the same truth. It's just a slightly different angle. It's a a little different perspective. God is his salvation, and on God rests his salvation. God not only accomplishes our salvation, he actually gives himself to us as part of that salvation. So often, seeing the truth and holding it up and looking at it from as many angles as possible helps us to orient our minds and hearts, helps us to be rightly and freshly impacted by the truth that we can otherwise just gloss by. And then David does something new. He turns to address us, to address his audience directly. So far, he's only uh, spoken to God and to his enemies, right? I'm sorry, he's spoken to himself and to his enemies. But now he turns his attention to us in verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So David's picking up on that theme of hoping in God alone, and he's expanding it. To hope in God alone means to hope hope in God at all times. And the most practical expression of that, the the how-to of hoping in God alone, is to pour out your heart before him. It's It's an intriguing image, right? Our hearts are like liquid, and our hopes and our desires and our hurts and our joys and our our disappointments and our aspirations, all of that is to be poured out before God. Well, that's risky, isn't it? It's risky to pour out your heart. If we pour out our hearts to someone, they can take advantage of us, right? They can expose our, our dark secrets, they can twist our words, they can use things against us. It requires faith to pour out your heart to someone. And so, David reminds us of a key motivating gospel truth uh, for us. He's, he's, He's saying to us, God is a refuge for us. He's a refuge for his people. Others will fail us even sometimes if they love us, but God is a refuge. His character is perfect. So you're not just pouring it out to somebody you meet on the street. You're pouring out your heart to the God who is a refuge for us. He's demonstrated that conclusively by sending Jesus. The love that drove Jesus to the cross is our keel. It's the foundational truth that we can build our lives upon and our hope upon. It's the truth that no storm can wreck and no trial can crash to the shore. This is why we can and must pour out our hearts to God. So what what prevents us from that? Is there anything that would keep us from pouring out our hearts to God? David commends it to us. Pour out your heart to God. All of it. He knows it all anyway. So this isn't, this isn't a matter of bringing God up to speed. Hey, God, you might not know what I've been going through lately. God knows it all. It's actually a faith-filled act of trusting in His goodness. Saying, God, You're my God. You're my Savior. I'm going to pour everything into You. I'm looking to You alone. It's a very challenging thing to do. When I when I face trial and suffering, <laughs> this is not natural. I, it, it, even the last few weeks of reading this psalm has been so helpful to me, because I'm looking at all these situations in my life, and 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 challenge and struggle and uncertainty, and I'm looking, what's my response? Well, okay, I got to do this, and this has to happen. I got to talk to this person. We got to make this thing here, that, and the other thing, and 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 all of it ends up being godless i'm not thinking about god i'm certainly not looking to him for help i'm like okay i got this you know we just have to do these things i'm not hoping in god and and in reading these verses and seeing the god as he's described there and hearing david commend him to me as i've started to say okay god i want to hope in you alone help me to hope in you alone if this is a foreign concept to you say i wouldn't even know what it means to hope in god alone That's a great place to start. God, I don't know what it means to hope in you alone. Help me to hope in you alone. I need to grow. I need wisdom. I need faith. I don't know. I don't know what to do. That's exactly the kind of heart that God honors. That's what he's looking for. He's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Hope in God alone. David then turns to address some of the dangers of false hopes, and especially the folly of hoping in our circumstances. He's going to give us a God's eye view of man. And he, he knows we're always tempted to put our ultimate hope in ourselves or in other people. And so he wants to save us from those mistakes. And so he begins by looking at our reliance on our station in life or our financial position as the grounds for our hope. And as you might expect, he's against that. Verse 9, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Well, the imagery is pretty clear, if not flattering. They're but a breath, right? That's language that the author of Ecclesiastes picks up on. The poor are vaporous. They're insubstantial. But the wealthy are no better off. They're delusional. Well, Okay, but there's there's many kinds of delusion. What kind of delusion is this? Well, if you pile them up together, wealthy and poor, which means all of us, the whole spectrum, if you pile them together, they're together lighter than a breath. And so the, um, the foolishness, the delusion of the wealthy is in thinking that they're substantial when they're really nothing, they're but a breath. Their lack of substance is compounded by their arrogant assumption that they're really important. You know, we're in the midst of Hollywood's award season right now, and if there's anything Hollywood excels at, it's self-promotion. They've set up this whole industry of talk shows and press junkets and award shows to remind themselves that what they do is important and that it really matters. David says this is delusional. Today's starlet is tomorrow's reject. And the the wealth and the fame that she counted on and that gave her life meaning can go as quickly as they came. And Hollywood stars and wannabe stars aren't the only ones who can hope in wealth and fame, are they? We're all tempted to look at money for our hope We can even be tempted to improve our financial position any way possible because we think, well, with money comes security and independence and importance. But again, David doesn't uh, doesn't agree. Verse 10, put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Well, we can try and gain wealth by robbery or extortion, which are both illegal and against God's law. Or we can gain wealth any way possible, including just by hard work. But however wealth comes, David's bottom line is the same. Set not your heart on them. The problem with money is not money. The problem with money is our hearts. It's the love of money. It's the lure of money where it becomes our God and promises us peace and security and, excuse me, most of all, independence. This is what David warns us against. It seems that God wills to keep most of us in a place of obvious dependence on him financially. Why does he do that? Why aren't we all just independently wealthy? Right? It would be a lot easier to pay for this building if we were all just independently wealthy. Why does God not do that? Well, Proverbs 30 puts it this way. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So the temptation of great poverty is to do something desperate and so dishonor the Lord. And the temptation of great wealth is to be full of ourselves and actually deny God, to think that we made ourselves and we're going to sustain ourselves. Who's the Lord? Who needs Him? And so God keeps us somewhere in between so that we can learn to trust in Him and to lean on Him and to hope in Him throughout our entire lives. And of course, David addresses wealth here, but there's many areas in which we can look to hope outside of God, aren't there? You know, we're in January, which is when many fitness resolutions are made and subsequently broken. When I worked at Sears, I sold a lot of treadmills in January that were clothes hangers by February. That's pretty typical. Um, And every so often, the latest, you know, diet, nutrition, fad comes out, and there's always amazing promises that your life will be changed. Well, none of these things is intrinsically good or evil. They're just tools. They can be done humbly in faith toward God, or they can be the object of incredible longing and hope and meaning and purpose in life. If they're the latter, they're always going to disappoint us. So to help us gain perspective, let's take some of the idols of our age and import them into David's verses here and see what we get. And just to be clear, I'm not trying to make a... An unhelpful mockery of these, or to make light of anybody's struggles. I just think it helps to look at specific ways that we can be tempted to hope outside of God. So David says, "Those of low estate are but a breath; those of high estate are a delusion." We might say, "Those who are old are but a breath; those who are young are a delusion." Right in a culture that idolizes youth, or those who are ugly are but a breath; those who are beautiful. Are a delusion. Those who are overweight are but a breath. Those who are fit are a delusion. Those who are weak are but a breath. Those who are strong are a delusion. Those who are lonely are but a breath. Those who are popular are a delusion. Those are just a few examples. On certain you can think of others um, hopefully if you've been hoping in something or someone outside of the lord the holy spirit's been at work kindly drawing you to himself leading you to repentance and faith in god alone we don't want to hope in our youth or our beauty or our health or our finances or anything other than god alone he's jealous for our affection He doesn't look kindly upon rivals, even as he is kind and patient with wayward sinners like us, as he draws us back to himself. So hope in God alone. David concludes this psalm with two important notes for us. The first is the gospel fuel we need to actually hope in God alone. Verse 11, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. That saying, once, twice, you know, once God has spoken, twice have I heard. is just a, a literary way of saying this is certain. This is as true as true gets. It's repeated because it's unchangeably true. Power belongs to God. And in context here, I think it seems plain that David means saving power. Right? He needs salvation. And that salvation must be accomplished powerfully. Weak solutions won't do. The, the delusional power of the wealthy doesn't help. Where should he turn? He turns to God alone because power belongs to God. All power and authority are his. And thankfully, he's not a God of bare power. The God of power is also the God of love. It's not just any love. It's it's a well-known Old Testament term, chesed, the the covenantal love of God, the the God whose affections are life-changing and unswerving. To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love you're realizing that your hope has not been in god alone take heart if you feel like i you know i've wavered i'm unworthy take heart you are unworthy and there is a savior who's worthy there's a savior who's done everything you need to be right with god it was never going to be about you and your performance it was never going to be about you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps it was never going to be about you reforming your character enough to to where god would say okay you're in That was never the case. Of course you're unworthy. Jesus is worthy. Jesus fulfilled everything that needed to be filled. So turn to him. He's the rock. Pour out your heart to him. Repent where you need to repent. Turn in faith to him and know forgiveness and grace. This is a very personal and specific thing. You can know a Savior. You can pour out your heart to God and know him as your refuge. This isn't generic, this is personal. God speaks this to every one of us, that we might know him personally and profoundly as our refuge. How satisfying it is to finally turn from ourselves and our own efforts and to turn to Christ and know a savior and a refuge, to know power and love that can change us. David's final point is to tell us that God is just, for you will render to a man according to his work. Well, this is a warning to David's enemies. God is going to render to them according to his work. And if you're opposed to God right now, beware. He will bring justice into your life. But much more than that, in the context of this psalm, this verse clearly reminds us that God will vindicate his people. When David says that God will render to a man according to his work, we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that it's by our effort that we merit something from God. That privilege belongs to Jesus alone. Our works are always a response to his work and always flow out of what he has done for us. Our works are done as we hope in God alone. I want to close with the story of a man whose death illustrated this point very well. J. Gresham Machen was born in 1881 in Baltimore to a very wealthy and prominent family. And he placed his faith in Christ as a young man Uh, and went on to attend Princeton Seminary, when it was actually a very strong and conservative school. He came back as a professor of New Testament in 1906, and he served there well for years. But over time, Princeton's trustees changed, and the seminary began to head in a liberal direction. And as Machen saw that writing on the wall, he worked to begin a new seminary, Westminster theological seminary just outside of Philly. And he also wrote several notable books, including Christianity and Liberalism, which is an outstanding book. Uh, It's just as relevant today as it was 90 years ago. He was the go-to source for rigorous conservative evangelical scholarship, similar in some ways to the role that Al Mohler occupies today when they wanted, what do conservative Christians think about this? They went to Machen. He later helped to establish the Orthodox Presbyterian Church as the PCUSA was drifting into liberalism. Well, in December of 1936, Machen traveled out to the Dakotas to speak at some churches, some commitments he had made. He was in ill health. He was weakened, but he was going to hold up for his commitments. As he went, as he preached, as he traveled in the bitter cold, his health continued to decline, and he contracted pneumonia. Before succumbing to that disease on New Year's Day of 1937, Machen telegrammed his dear friend John Murray these outstanding words. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Here's a man who'd achieved great professional success. He'd written best-selling books. He'd started a church and a seminary. He established a legacy that continues today. His books are still read. And his deathbed hope was in Jesus Christ and his obedience for us, what he accomplished for sinners like you and me. The active obedience of Christ, his fulfillment of the Father's will so that we could be counted righteous in him. That is what sustained and encouraged Machen on his deathbed. The same can be true for us. If you failed to hope in God or if you wavered in your hope, if you're worried that you're not worthy, take heart. Christ is our worthy Savior. He is our rock and our refuge. And he shows himself strong for all who hope in him. The more clearly we see our need for our Savior, the more clearly we see Jesus as our Savior, the more clearly, the more profoundly, the more gloriously we will hope in God alone. Let's pray. Father, it's true. Many dangers, many trials, many storms that we live this life. And if we didn't know your goodness and grace, we would despair. But you have showed yourself faithful. You've showed yourself true. You've showed yourself to be the God of power and love. And because of that, because of your mercy and goodness, we hope in you. We turn to you. Father, I pray that you would stir faith in our hearts as we consider the circumstances that we're in. Stir faith in our hearts. Help us to hope in you alone, where other hopes have tried to take away our focus on you. Make yourself glorious and true so that you can be rightly glorified in your people and we might be rightly encouraged and sustained in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.